This audio is from King's Cross Church in Independence, Missouri. For more information or to donate to this ministry, visit kingscrosskc.com. Turn to Psalm 91 with me and it says this. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wing you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you, no plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder. The young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. This is the word of the Lord. Well, hey, good morning, everybody. I got to get something off my chest, otherwise it's going to bother me the whole sermon and I won't be able to focus. You know that phenomenon, I'm sure there's like a specific name for it, but where you say a word over and over and then you start to forget like what the word means and how you're supposed to say it. Do you know what I'm talking about? You guys experienced that? Every time we sing that song, God is a refuge, I'm like, wait, is it refuge? Is it refuge? Is it refugee? So I'm, I'm anxious about mispronouncing it uh, during the sermon today. Day. So I just needed to get that out of my brain. So I wasn't thinking about it the whole time. Hey, if I haven't gotten a chance to meet you, my name's Jared. And I just wanted to start by saying I'm so thankful and honored to be here with you today. I love your church. And I love what God is doing here at King's Cross. I have dear friends and family members who call King's Cross home. Every time I come here, it feels like home to me. And I'm just glad to be worshiping Jesus with you. I also want to say that uh, I get to play softball with some of you guys on Thursday nights and it's been amazing being sanctified and humbled with you and I think that this uh, psalm is for us specifically because we've been striking our feet against stones uh, the last couple weeks and we need encouragement from the Lord. Trevor knows what I'm talking about specifically. And man, I also just want to say, I love your pastors. I love your staff, Orion and Will and Trevor and Howard and Sarah and Colby and Kayla. I'm sure others that I'm forgetting, they care for you so well. Man, they love you. They, they have this like fatherly protection in them, this passion to see you grow and mature up into the faith and this motherly tenderness and care and patience. And they are just honorable, godly people. And I'm so glad that we get opportunities to continue to minister together and just to be their friends. So um, I felt like Paul this week, I just happened to be reading in Colossians 1, 
And this just reminded me of you where he says about that church, he says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you've already heard in the true message of the gospel that's come to you. So in the same way, the gospel's bearing fruit, it's growing throughout the whole world just, it has been, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. And that's true of all of you here in Independence, just like it was of that church in Colossae. And I don't want to preach a second sermon, but I just want to encourage you with that, uh, that people are watching the faith and love and good deeds that you are doing to advance the kingdom, and it's really encouraging to other believers. So know that. And so the goal of this summer, right, being in the Psalms, working our way through different types of Psalms even, is to examine them as a way to explore how you find rest for your souls. And the Sunday school answer, right, is simply trust God. Okay? And that's not wrong, but I think what we want to do is go deeper and ask what it is about God, what it is about his character, his promises, his track record, what, who he says he is, and how he follows through on that, that can actually functionally calm your fears, meet you in places of anxiety, meet you in places of worry, because ultimately it's having more than just the Sunday school answer that's going to be able to be a balm to your soul in the challenges of life, whatever that might be for you today and provide you with this sense of confidence in who he is, this sense of wholeness and calm and renewal and flourishing and shalom even in your heart. And this psalm in particular is a little bit daunting because it's kind of overflowing with promises and reminders and comfort and hope. And in fact, this has historically been turned to by Christians for millennia, specifically in times of crisis, in things like war and things like pandemics, even in things like persecution and demonic attack. There's one Nigerian theologian, his name is David Adamo, who said it this way. He said, the Bible offers lots of promises of protection. But in Psalm 91, all of those promises seem to be brought together in one collection, forming a type of covenant from God to his people. Verse 2 of this psalm gave Martin Luther the basis for the hymn, Ein Fest Berg ist unser Gott. Pardon my German. That's a mighty fortress is our God, maybe is what you're familiar with. And then Charles Spurgeon called this psalm a heavenly medicine against plague and pest. The mental image that I get, just like a cursory reading of Psalm 91, is kind of this, this believer who's surrounded by threats, everything from natural disasters to war to arrows to famine, like all kinds of things are around him, swirling around him, but he passes through totally unharmed, defended even by angels, kind of on all sides, secure, regardless of whatever enemy comes against him, which is really to say invincible, that the believer is this picture of invincibility. And it's this timely, classic, encouraging psalm. But I think psalms like this have this potential to land flat for us because we go, yeah, like that's really cool and nice and encouraging. And I know that I should like believe that. But it also kind of seems on the opposite side of the spectrum, a little fantastical, 
right? It feels a little bit exaggerated. Like, yeah, that would be nice if all those things were true, if I could like stand in a field of 10,000 people and they all die around me and I'm the one left standing alive because God protected me with angels, but that just doesn't seem statistically likely, you know? Like it's hard for us to get to that place. And interestingly, even the devil quotes Psalm 91 as he seeks to tempt Jesus in the wilderness. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. But I think because of that, there's something really powerful going on here. There's some kind of spiritual truth that both simultaneously feels mysterious and beautiful and almost outlandish, and yet we long for it to be true for us. But the reality is, and we don't need to raise hands to know this is true, a lot of us don't resonate with Psalm 91 right now. We don't feel like the arrows are missing us. We don't feel like we're being protected on all sides by angels, and that's okay. That just means that you're human. That just means that you're experiencing a fallen world. And I hope that as we explore it, you can find in whatever way you need particular encouragement for whatever type of challenge or trial or threat maybe feels most heavy to you right now. So I don't have like an alliterated three points. I just want to walk through these verses, uh, paying special attention to, there's some insane verbiage used here that I want to draw attention to as we talk about it, for those who truly trust in the Lord. So for those who dwell and abide in him, which is simply to say those who take up residence with the Lord Almighty, who trust in him with all that they are, he promises to do at least these nine things. Promises to deliver them. He promises to cover them. He promises to guard them. He says, no evil will be allowed to befall them. He says they will tread and trample over evil. He says that he'll answer them when they call out to him. He says that he'll rescue them. He will honor them. And ultimately, he will satisfy them. So if you're sitting here today and you say, yes, I trust and love Jesus. I believe he is the highest good in life. My hope is in him. All of those promises are for you. I think sometimes we can just kind of read through a psalm like that and go, yeah, that's great. What's Psalm 92, you know, and not stop and slow down and go, wait, hold on a second. That's that's massive. That changes everything about the way I walk through my life. And those are really big promises. So I ask God this week for help from the Holy Spirit to make those not just these things that we could regurgitate to somebody else, you know, intellectually. Say, yeah, God will honor and rescue and satisfy and deliver his children, but that actually would stir up like a a more tangible trust, a more tangible anchor, right, for your soul in the places where you might feel tossed and turned in the storms of life. So that's all introduction. Let me pray, and then we'll jump deeper into Psalm 91 if you guys want to pray with me. So God, I just want to pray uh, more of Colossians 1 for my brothers and sisters at King's Cross Church in the hopes that it would stir joy in them, that it would encourage steadfastness in them, in us, as you push us more towards love and good deeds as we open this psalm. So I ask, Father, first that you would continually fill us up with the knowledge of your will through all wisdom and understanding by the Spirit so that we might live a life worthy of you, that we might please you and bring glory to your name in the world by bearing fruit, 
good fruit. I pray that we would be strengthened with all power according to your glorious might so that we might increase in endurance and patience and joy. I pray all those things because you gave us an imperishable inheritance into your family. You rescued us from the dominion of darkness and you brought us into the kingdom of Jesus, your beloved son, in whom we have redemption. We have forgiveness of sins. What wonderful news that is for a room full of sinners. What a sweet song that can be to our weary souls this morning. Thank you, Jesus. So as we dive into this psalm, as we open your word, would you illuminate it? There's places that feel tricky and confusing and far away. And so would you make things clear that don't feel clear in our hearts right now? Even places that are hard to focus on because of other things that are swirling around inside of us. We want to be transformed by you. We want to treasure you. We want to trust you more because of deeper understanding, deeper conviction of sin, and deeper repentance and application of your words. So would you do all that? Would you do more than that? Do things that I don't even know what to ask for in this room, but you know. Come and minister in your mercy, in your kindness, in your tender fatherly way by the power of your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I'm going to break a big preacher rule, so don't get used to this. But I'm going to jump ahead for a second and make a really foundational claim because I think it's so important that if we don't get this, and it's going to seem really simple, it's going to seem really like elementary, but if you don't get this, it really changes the way that you understand and read the rest of the psalm. Here it is. It's only for those who make the Lord their dwelling place and hold fast to God that get to cling to these promises of provision and deliverance and flourishing. Those who don't do that, those who stray from that way and put themselves out of God's protection do not get to cling to these promises. And what's fascinating is when the devil quotes these verses to Jesus, he conveniently left out those details to sweeten this promise of temptation, knowing how it indicted he, the devil himself, and it nullified his misapplication of this scripture. Here's why I think that Satan tried to use Psalm 91 to tempt Jesus to jump off of the temple because Psalm 91 promises that angels are going to catch him. That, that was his application of the passage, at least on the surface. I think it's a temptation that a lot of us face. I think it's a, a possibility of a way to read the text that is pretty dangerous. And it's simply because he wants you to distrust God. He wants you to put him to the test. It's what he's always done. He started in the garden by saying, is that really what God said? Right? He's always trying to undermine the faith that we have in the Creator to provide and care and do what He says is going to do. That was His strategy. It's been His strategy since the beginning of time, but Jesus wouldn't use Psalm 91 that way. Neither did Stephen when he was stoned to death. Neither did Paul when he was beaten with rods. And Jesus still didn't use Psalm 91 that way when He bent over the cross. None of them understood, none of the biblical writers understood Psalm 91 to mean God's children will never suffer at the hands of their enemies or just out of the natural fallenness of the world. 
And we have to know the word in our bones to be able to combat those kinds of subtle, clever lies and misuses of Scripture. And there's New Testament parallels for this too, because I don't want you to feel like we're cherry-picking verses or cherry-picking psalms and stuff like that. So for example, Jude 20 and 21 says, But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Similarly, John 15, 9 and 10 says, As the fathers loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I've kept the Father's commandments, and I abide in his love. Use those examples, and there's other ones we could go to, to show that there are conditions to the ability to claim these things. In other words, dwelling in the shadow of the Almighty, abiding in the shelter of the Most High, means implicitly trusting in the love of God, trusting in the power of God to give you everything that you need to do His will, to glorify His name, whether or not you live or die. You have to be plugged into the power source, right, to experience the benefits of it. To say it another way, Dwelling in the shadow of the Most High, keeping yourself in the love of God means trusting that the love of God, the wisdom of God, the power of God will protect you from anything that could ultimately destroy you, internally destroy you, not just physically and temporally. Though the examples, like in this passage, might be temporal examples, they point to deeper realities. So for anybody who continuously and consciously and passionately embraces the Lord, daily trusts in Him, the blessings of Psalm 91 are for you and those who seek after God as their highest good. It's not for those who manipulate his promises for their own gain. Ultimately, that is satanic at its core. It's what, what our enemy has done since the beginning. So what this does is it forces us to introspection, right? To ask questions like this. Do you live in God's presence every day? Or do you merely kind of visit him from time to time? Maybe it's an hour on Sunday. Maybe it's a Wednesday night. Maybe it's whatever. Do you cry out for help only when you're sinking? Or do you cry out for help on a moment-by-moment -moment basis? God is an eternal refuge. See, was that right? Refuge? Okay. To those who habitually seek their home in Him. A question I asked myself this week was, do I love to be alone with God? To converse with Him? It's just a simple question maybe that you can rescue or you can wrestle with this week. And the second level question for me was if I don't love that, if I don't want that, why? What, what other refuge, what other thing, what other fortress has replaced my affections here? 
And it brought me back to this uh, image as a child. Uh, my mom and dad are here. I wonder if they'll remember this. There was a, uh, we had a neighbor behind our house who had a garage and it had this kind of like peaked, like two peak garage that created this little valley that I could climb up to and nobody could see me. It was safe. It was quiet. I could just be there with my thoughts. There's nothing I had to do when I was there. It felt like a shelter or a refuge and it kind of felt, you know, a little risque, like what if they catch me, you know, kind of thing. So that, that's a whole other thing that's not applying to the psalm. But that image came to my mind of, of wanting to be in that hiding place of sorts. And maybe you have a place like that. It might not be like a physical place, like your neighbor's garage roof, but it might be a bottle. It might be pornography. It might be something else, staying busy and distracted so you don't have to face the hard things in your life. Ultimately, whatever it is, it doesn't really matter. The point is, in this psalm, what it's trying to make is that all other places of refuge pale in comparison to the refuge of this God. There's nothing that can follow through on its promises like this God can. Just like how eventually our neighbors caught me and then they put up a fence and I couldn't climb up on the garage roof anymore. Every day, you and I are faced with choices, faith choices. Will God be my guardian or will I make myself my own guardian? Will I look to some other different guardian? Will I piece together a whole bunch of little guardians to make up a bigger shield, a bigger fortress, one that feels more powerful? Will I diversify my portfolio of fortresses and refuges? If so... Psalm 91 says that you can find all of that in him. You don't have to piece something together that's going to be counterfeit and not good enough anyway. And if you choose another guardian, you have to then ask yourself, is it going to be able to protect me? And ultimately, we all know that it's not. I know for me, I can look at my bank account sometimes as a guardian. And as it gets lower, I can feel less confident and I can kind of get spun up and anxious trying to get it higher. And as it gets higher, I can have this false confidence of like, now, now this insulates me from some type of fear that I have. But ultimately, I know it's never going to be enough. I could have billions of dollars in the bank and it wouldn't be enough to make me feel totally secure. Another way that I can do that is I can look to my spouse for approval. If she's happy with me, I can feel okay. I can feel strong. I can feel confident. But if she's not, I can feel fearful or small or anxious and become even codependent. And I know that the reason for that is because she can never provide for me everything that I need like God can. I don't know what it is for you. I'm sure all of you have your own examples that you could come up with. But identifying those things and then actively resisting this temptation to make them your fortress, make them your refuge, and repenting when you do, at its core, is one of the most fundamental practices of being a Christian. So as you, it's not, hey, if you ever experience that, it's as you experience that temptation, that pull towards sin in that way, you can turn and run from it. And here's the great news. God's eager, willing, excited to welcome you back. He's not there to shame you. He's not there to, oh, I can't believe you ran to that stupid refuge again, you idiot. You should know by now that's not going to be enough to save you. He's going, no, come, come back in. And here's, here's how I know that. Look down at verse 4. It says, and this, I'm going to use a different um, 
version because this pinions is not a word that we typically use uh, in the ESV. But he'll cover you with his, with his feathers. Under his wings you'll find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. And this picture is a foreshadow, a future foreshadowing to the illusion of the picture of God like a mother hen gathering her chicks under her wings that we see in Matthew 23. By natural instincts, a mother hen doesn't only protect her chicks when they're in danger. It's not like they're all just like out doing whatever they want and then she rushes up whenever there's danger, though she would do that. But she's also constantly gathering them under. She's calling them under her protection when she sees danger on the horizon. So she doesn't just keep them safe, but she also tends to them, keeps them warm, nourishes them. And that picture of God is both strong defending father, right, that has, you know, the shield and the buckler, the soldier imagery, as well as a tender mother is a really special one because it shows more fully the character of God. He's not one or the other. He's both. And he's both completely, all the time, perfectly. So in every way that we fail to defend our children, that we fail to tend to our children, he doesn't. He doesn't do that with us. He never fails. He knows exactly what we need when we need it. Now look down at verses 5 to 8, because this is where things get a little bit intense. He says, You won't fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. So he says we don't need to fear all of these things that sound really scary. I don't know if you've like read the news, but there's like a lot of scary things that we can plug in here in more modern parlance, right? Every day we're constantly getting faced with. I just want to say I don't think this means that we like intentionally, arrogantly walk out in the middle of a battlefield where like missiles are raining down. We don't intentionally, arrogantly reject modern medicine, the common grace of that, to try to like prove a point. It means ultimately those things that are fearful, those things that do have power on this earth don't have total power over us because our citizenship isn't on earth, but it's in heaven. Our bodies here aren't eternal, but there are perfect eternal bodies waiting for us. And even as I say that, I don't want to swing the pendulum too far to the other side because there's also the reality that God could miraculously preserve you. I know people in this room who have had miraculous preservation, particularly medically, where God has taken care of them in a way that is supernatural. Paul gets bitten by poisonous snakes. He survives. He's led out of prison by earthquakes and angels. Lots of the apostles and prophets are delivered in ways that it seem crazy. And there's tons of stories across the globe, like right now, Christians across the globe who are experiencing deliverance from the hand of God that can't be explained. And we don't know when or how God might choose to do that. So we aren't called to live recklessly and foolishly, but we also aren't called to live without this understanding that he can and will and does do that. And there's a tension there, right, that I can't empty for us. I can't solve for us. I don't think anybody can. But I can say that both sides of that coin are true. Both sides of that coin matter to walking faithfully 
with Jesus. And so we're called to trust God in the face of a death, whether it be cancer or ISIS or a bus or a natural disaster. He numbers our days. And we can be sure that he will complete both the work in us that he wants to do and the work through us that he's, he's laid out for us, these good works he prepared in advance for us before the foundation of the world, and that ultimately he'll bring us safely home. So now skip down to verse 13, because I think this is really important and something that you could really easily miss that I miss with just a cursory reading. You will tread on the lion and the adder. The young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I, you know, if I'm just at a cursory reading trying to give an application for this, it's like, okay, let's go jump on the lions at the zoo. Maybe pursue a vocation as a snake handler or, you know, something like that. I don't think that's what it means. Here's, here's what I think. If I'm trying to read this in terms of all biblical theology, the full story, the full picture. We have an enemy. We have an adversary. His name's the devil. He's called many things in scripture, but two of the most prominent pictures of the devil in the scripture are a roaring lion seeking to devour in 1 Peter 5:8, and then his oldest embodiment being the serpent in the garden or even other places he's called a dragon. So if you fast forward to Romans 16, we're given a similar promise that the God of peace shall tread Satan under your feet. Maybe a little more clear and explicit than here in Psalm 91. Christ crushed the serpent's head. That's what happened on the cross. He fulfilled this promise from Genesis 3 that he would crush the head of the serpent. And he triumphed over our spiritual enemies. And through him, Romans also says that we're more than conquerors. Christ calls us to join him in victory and to literally come and set your feet on the necks of your enemies because the victory is so complete and total. And through Jesus, we claim the same power over the lion, over this serpent that he has. We see this promise put into effect in the ministry of Jesus himself, the miraculous power that he had over creation. He healed the sick. He cast out demons. I don't know if you caught this, but even in his commission to the disciples, he says that they should be able to handle serpents, which sounds really weird unless you have this bigger picture of the totality of the story of scripture. And I think that that language was really intentional by our king to remind us of the original story and the, termi the terminal fate of the serpent. He's a defeated foe. He's a lion on a leash, right? Without teeth like he used to have. He's a snake with a broken neck. He can't overcome us, even if the bite may ultimately be fatal to your body. It's not fatal to your soul. So Christians, just for an example, Christians that die in persecution, which are, is happening right now all over the world, they conquer Satan, Revelation 12, 11 says. But how? How did they conquer Satan? They died, right? It seems like they lost. But no, Revelation 12 says that because they trusted implicitly in the blood of the Lamb, that secured for them their future happiness in God forever, their future safety forever. And they opened their mouth and they gave testimony about the Lamb in that moment. And the fear of death didn't stop them. 
And as they're dying, they were safe in the shadow of the Almighty. As they're dying, they're entering paradise totally and completely at peace and safe in their fortress. And I think that's the kind of triumphant safety that Psalm 91 is calling us to. Not this, you know, Marvel Avengers invincibility walking into the middle of the battlefield type of thing. And for most of us, the likelihood is it's not going to be as a martyr, but it might be on a hospital bed. And I think the principle remains the same. If God is your treasure, your forever is secure because he always makes good on his promises and death doesn't get the final say. The way that Satan thinks he wins through his best tool, his best weapon of death, it's not strong enough. It's not sufficient. Jesus made sure of that. Okay, so let's read verses 14 to 16 as we close. He says, because he holds fast to me in love, I'll deliver him. I'll protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I'll answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him with long life. I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. And I know we're just like, we're flying over this stuff. I feel like we're like over a diamond field and you're just like, we're just getting these little glimpses of all of this beauty. And I hope you get a chance to mine these verses more in the week ahead and the years ahead in your life. But I want to close by just encouraging you with a couple of different ways, I think, to pray this psalm, to pray in the midst of whatever challenges you're facing. First one comes from a theologian that I read. I forgot to write who it was as I was studying, so I don't know who the credit to give, but these are not my words. Um, Whoever it was said, In your Gethsemane of suffering, pray for deliverance according to God's sovereign power and mercy. But then, say with Jesus, not my will, but thy will be done. And then believe whatever befalls you will not, in the end, be evil for you, but good. Cling to the hope of Romans 8.28. That's the both sides of the coin. Then another one, another application, another way to pray. This is from Matthew Henry. I wrote this one down. As you struggle through life, ask God by his grace to keep you from distrust and ungodly fear that torments you, even in the midst of the greatest dangers. So the way that I would say that would be ask for the armor of God, particularly for the shield of faith to guard you from spiritual attack that would threaten to erode your trust and push you towards a counterfeit abiding place. He's given us the tools to trust and follow him in obedience. And there's nothing but death for us in other fortresses, other places of refuge, no matter how secure they might feel in the moment. And man, maybe just as this is more applicable to everybody in the room than anything I've said so far. But if all of this feels just like too much for you right now, if you're going, yeah, man, that all sounds great for everybody else. But I just, I don't know how to do that right now. I just want to remind you of something really important that I hope can maybe reframe your perspective. And I know that I need this like all the time too. So you're not alone. Your hope is not in the strength of your faith. It's in the object of your faith. 
and he's really strong. Yeah. He's really sure. He's really secure. So when you don't feel those ways, you can trust that he is, and he's got you. So when you do fail, when your faith is not strong, when you are stumbling and you feel like things are unsteady, all you're called to do is to run back to him. You don't have to muster up things. You don't have to put on a happy face. You don't have to look good for everybody else. You don't have to read twice as many Bible verses. You don't have to do any of that. You just have to run back to him in humility and repentance, and he will grab you back into the fortress and keep you safe because he cares for you. Man, that's why, as Christians, we take communion. That's why Christians have done this for thousands of years. It's to remind ourselves of the strength of our Savior and his finished work on our behalf, to renew our faith, confess our sin, look inward, and ask him to reveal what needs to be revealed so that our union with him could be strengthened. Brothers and sisters, because Jesus was left unsheltered, you now have a perfect shelter. Because he was not delivered from the cross, you have been delivered from the sentence, the snare of sin and death. Because Jesus had no fortress to run to, you now have one to dwell in forever. That's great news. I pray that it stirs you on enjoy this week. So I'm going to pray. Ben will come back up. We'll worship together, and you can come take communion. You can come to either one of these stations up at front, and you'll have people speaking words of blessing over you, reminding you of truth, and then there'll also be people here available to pray for you. So if you're sitting here going, hey, man, none of this actually feels <laughs> applicable to my life, but I've got this other thing that I want somebody to pray for me about, they'd love to pray for you. I'd love to pray for you. Or if God did stir something in you through these verses, through the word, through these songs, come and be prayed for. There's nothing to be embarrassed about. There's nothing to be, uh, you don't have to show off and feel strong because you don't get prayed for. We all need prayer. We all need that type of support from our community. So uh, I'll pray now and uh, ask God to move and work in our minutes left together. So Jesus, as... We sit here as needy children, all of us with different places where we're feeling pinched, feeling stressed, feeling heavy, feeling tired, feeling scared, honestly, like little children. I ask King Jesus that you would move in such a way that, uh, not, not that you say, oh, oh, that's dumb to be afraid of that or it's dumb to be stressed about that, but to meet us in our places of emotion and in our places where we need you and to hold us tenderly, whatever that looks like for each person here. For those who don't call you their abiding place right now, they can't honestly sit there and say, yes, I, I believe God is the highest good in my life, I pray that they would know today can be the first day of that, that the fortress gate is open for them to come in. And for those of us who maybe have strayed away a little bit, like little chicks uh, from Mother Hen, would you gather us back, show us your love, help us feel it, not just know about it, but experience it in our life. And would that keep us in your love? Thank you for being the type of almighty that we can dwell in your shadow. You're not distant. You're not far away. You're not fickle. 
You're near and imminent and present and personal. We praise you for that this morning together. In Christ's name, amen.